Today's topic will be a little bit easier to teach because the Megillah is a book that everyone's familiar with. Correct? Usually when you teach something, you usually talk about a text that people haven't heard before. makes it difficult to teach. Here, we have the opposite problem. We know the book so well, it's hard sometimes to look at it with different eyes. So our topic will be about Megillah Tester, but we're really not going to read too much inside because you know the book. We're going to try and understand what was the purpose of the book. In general, anytime you read a book, before you begin reading, there's always a basic question you have to ask, is what was the author's intent? Why is this book being written? Because there's a very big difference when you read a book, if you want to understand the purpose of the book, and to understand what the author's message is, you have to have at least a beginning assumption of why the book was written. I'll give you just for the fun of it an uh, example from Chumash. We call this chronicle composition. I'll give you an example from Chumash that will kill a little time until um, we get started. When you read Chumash, if we read Chumash's history and you read the story of creation, then the purpose of writing the seven days of creation is to let you know what happened. If a book is a history book and the purpose of that book is chronicle, so the reader knows what happened, then I read the seven days of creation and I found out what happened during those seven days. If the purpose of the book is prophecy, what we call prophetic composition, then the question may be, the approach might be, it could be that I'm, the book is presenting something that appears to be historical, but the purpose of that presentation is for a prophetic message. And therefore it could be that from an historical point of view, creation might have taken billions of years, but the purpose of the first chapter in Breshit is to explain to the Jewish people why we need to keep Shabbat. Meaning, first God wants the Jewish people to keep Shabbat, and then God creates a creation story to make Shabbat meaningful. You understand the two approaches? When you read Chumash, your opening assumption is very important. And if my assumption is this is a book given to the Jewish people to explain their relationship with God, then it's okay to understand some of the stories, which ones that gets into a problem, but for sure the early ones, allegorically, because the purpose of that presentation is to give you a message. The question, where do you draw the line? No, but the early stories, for sure you can understand them that way. And even stories that did happen, how the Bible tells those stories also carries a message. And therefore, that assumption of when I'm reading any book of prophecy, what was the author's intent? Anytime it has to do with the Bible, the first assumption usually is the book is written for a prophetic purpose. I want to apply that now to Megillah Tester and we can start our share. When you read Megillah Tester, what's the reader's basic understanding? Is this book history? Chronicle? Is this book coming to tell me what happened? Is the author's intent to let the reader know the events? Then you can ask why he's writing that history. Or is the primary purpose of its composition to give a prophetic message? Now, when I say prophetic message, I don't mean prophecy. I'll explain why. Prophecy is a message from God. The books of Tuvim are not by God. They're written by man. But a prophetic message means it's a message where a person wants to give at least his take on what he thinks God's take on the issue is. A prophetic message would be not necessarily a message from God, but a message with the author's intent is to give over the way he understands how God sees the events. And that's usually what happens in Tuvim, except for Tilim, where we're, we're, in Tilim we already talk, back, talk to God. Not talk back to him. <laughs> we express ourselves to God. Now, when you read Megillah Tester, what was your assumption when you read the book? What was the reason why it was written? More as history or more as composition? Usually it's understood as history. When you read it as history, you run into a problem. What problem do you run into? Except for the first line and the last line. 
What's problematic about it if it's a history book? The opening line, for sure, is historical. The last line, last three lines, for sure. How about the stories in the middle? It, is that, it, who would agree with that? That when you read it, the feeling gets this is a little too... What? A little silly. <laughs> give, me examples of what, uh, give me examples of the fairy tale silliness that, in it. Yeah? Okay, that's one of them. <laughs> that's, that's very realistic. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, it's, it's more like an epic in, in, in that kind of sense. And any other examples? We're, we're pretty much fine, but we're a bunch of, in agreement, aren't we? No. If it's written that way, the question is, is someone trying, is it, I'll, I'll be mean for a minute, is it an art school type book? Where, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, for, for, for the, <laughs> do you understand my point? Am I writing the history where I know what the history should be? And therefore, I'm sort of using history and selectively quoting certain events in history and presenting the history the way I want it to be viewed. That's one approach, which is, might, might, I'm not, I don't want to talk about whether that's legitimate or not. That's a different argument. But am I taking a nice package history because I know what impression I want the reader to have? Or is it regular history? Or is it written in this fairy tale style to give a message? The third. Now, if it's a work, if the book is in the canon, it's part, one of the 24 books, I think it's logical to assume that the book has a prophetic message. Wouldn't that be logical? It sounds historical. But if I take both questions that I opened with together, that even though it presents itself as history, but the history is a little strange, and the second, I expect at least some type of prophetic message, then I can assume that what you would call maybe, what you call the silliness, or the epicness, is there a word like that? <laughs> no, no, I just made it up. <laughs> that, that style may be for, for a prophetic reason. And that's what we're going to try and do today. Is it possible to see the little nuances in, in the story? All these little things that seem a little fairy tale like are they there because that's what happened? Or are they written there on purpose so the reader is supposed to, what I like to say, wake up and smell the hummus? Yeah. Based on the opening line, is it written as the events are happening or later? It's the opening line. If I have to identify who this Achashverosh is, it seems to be written later. How much later, we don't know. And the, the book doesn't tell us who the author is, but it seems it's written like probably a generation or two later. Okay. What's the problem? That's what we all would like to say. That the purpose of the book is, look, look, it's glaring to you, look at the hand of God in history. That may be. What's the problem with that approach at the shot level? <laughs> Mention his name at least once? Because it's in the camp, because it's one of these books, I expect that to be the message. And therefore, it makes sense to look for that message. But then we have the opposite question. If that is the message, or should be the message, then what's called Haikar Chasem Minasefer? Why don't we mention God? Anyone want to suggest, not the, not the complicated reason, but is it possible to give a message? Is it, if someone wants to give a message to somebody else, gives over a message, is there a way of giving over that message without saying it explicitly? Do people ever do things like that? Yeah. What do we call that? Metaphor, allegory, satire. I'm, I'm always not sure exactly which, one, which one's which. I don't think there is one exact definition. There is, but, but no one seems to be able to pinpoint it. But sometimes the more powerful way to give over a message is, saying, is alluding to it. By saying something implicitly and not explicitly. And that's what we're going to try and see today. 
it's impossible to understand that that's what's going on in Megillat Esther. And to do that, we have to do something sort of to prepare for that study, and that's to consider what's the historical setting, and even more important, the prophetic setting of the book. When I'm reading Megillat Esther, am I supposed to, am I allowed to read the book by itself, and not take into account anything that happened beforehand, afterhand, or n- none of the other books? Or when I read the book, do I have to relate to its prophetic setting and historical setting? And that's always a question. When I'm, re- when I'm writing a book, or reading a book, and I'm asking myself, what was the author's intent? Am I assuming that the author of this book assumes that the reader has a certain background or not? Again, that's a very big difference when an author's writing a book. Is, take, take Animal Farm, for example. When George Orwell wrote the book, I'm assuming that he's assuming that, the, that his readership knows the story of the Russian Revolution. It, now, it's a nice story without knowing that. But the assumption is the reason why he's writing that story is because he has a message to give over, and instead of saying it in an explicit way, he does it through, through satire, allegory. Everyone knows Animal Farm. That's a classic example. Yeah. yeah for, for sure, even if... I'll give you an example for myself. When I read Animal Farm in high school, I had no, never heard of the Russian Revolution. I just knew about baseball, football. I, I had no idea about it. But we had to read it. 11th grade, whatever it was. We read it. And I loved the book. It was great. I didn't realize how cool it was until somewhere in college when I started learning a little bit of history. And the teacher never bothered to tell us what the... We just had to read it. We had to do a book report because it was in Shiva High School. You had to check off. No one really cared, but it was, it was in the curriculum. A level. So, I mean, it's possible. But on the other hand, if the author's intent when it was written was to give over a message, then it's important to take that... In, I'm not saying you can't understand the Megillah without it. You can understand it much better if you, if you take into consideration that background. So let me summarize, and now we're going to get to work. We're going to first try to understand the historical background based on the opening pasuk and a little bit of Jewish history. And then we're going to try and jump into the prophetic background and see if maybe we can identify if there's maybe a, a, a maybe called a deeper or a hidden message. Hidden, that's a nice word. What's hidden in Hebrew? Uh, if there's a hidden name or a hidden message in the book. Okay. To do that, I'm going to just real quickly go over the... Anyone who wants to know the history, that was the last class, that's really complicated. If we start with all that, it will take us another hour. I'm just going to mention Jewish history big time. I'm going to make a little timeline. Some Jewish history. We'll start year, that's year 1000. This is 1K, 2000, 3K, 4K, 5K, 6K. That's Jewish history on a line. Where does Jewish history begin? Avram Avinu. It's what year? 1948. We did that last time. Jewish history begins over here. But we only... How long is it until we become a nation? From Avram's birth until we come out of Egypt is 500 years. This, I call this the 500-year rule. This is, this is the Exodus. Here we become a nation. This is called the Avot. The time period. Then we have the time period of the Shoftim. Another 500 years. From the time we come out of Egypt until we get to the monarchy, it's about approximately 500 years. It's 480 years from the time we leave Egypt until we build the temple. Then we have the time of Bayat Rishon, first temple. That's 500 years. Sorry about that. Bayat Rishon. Then we have that 70-year interlude. And then we have Bayat Sheni, correct? And about 2,000 years ago, the temple was destroyed. And then we have the Talmud. Then you have the Go'onim. 
then you have the Rishonim, and you have the Achronim. It's a real quick, it's Jewish history in a nutshell. We're over here. The Megillah happens where? Where's, where's the story of the Megillah happening? Between Bait Rishon and Bait Shemi. That's all we did that for. We're going to erase all that, erase all this. And we're right between Bait Rishon and Bait Shemi. But that's important for one main reason. From the time we left Egypt, from the time we became a nation, and we came to the land of Israel, where was the center of the Jewish people? With the land of Israel. There was people who were sent into exile, but not much ever happened with them. The center of the Jewish people during the time of the Shoftim and during the first monarchy, the ten tribes and later Yehuda, the center was the land of Israel. People left, people were thrown out, but that was the hub. Everything was happening there. The first time that the Jewish people en masse are exiled and the center moves somewhere else, that's called the Babylonian exile. Correct? But that, was a, that never happened before, that the Jewish people weren't in their land. And from a prophetic point of view, that's a major issue. There's lots of books about that. Yemriel, Yechezkel. Th- those are major issues because the way most people interpreted that, how would you interpret that? If, you, if the God of Israel had a temple and this was a special land, and all of a sudden his people were exiled, and his temple was destroyed, what would be the most logical interpretation of those events? That's right. And therefore the people say goodbye. That's a real issue, a major issue, and the people say that, especially because all the rabbis were saying beforehand, it can't happen, it will never happen, it will never happen. That's what, that's what Yermiel is fighting them about, all the false prophets. And when all the prophets were saying, it can't happen, it won't happen, it won't happen, and then it does happen, there goes everyone's belief. That's the background for Shirin Yermiel and Yechezkel. I'm doing that because we're about to read Yermiel. One of Yermiel's main goals as a prophet is to give the people not just hope in the time of destruction, but to make sure they understand that the exile doesn't mean game over, it means you're going into rehab. And you're going to rehab for the purpose of returning. And we, we're, as a Jewish people, we're experts from a, from a belief point of view. We have 2,000 years experience believing in redemption and living in exile. So for us, it's easy. In fact, it's much easier for us to, be, to believe in God and live in exile and hope for a future than actually live in Israel and, and make it happen. You understand what I mean? It's, as a nation, we have 2,000 years experience, tremendous experience of survival in survival mode and belief. And, and we have much less experience in revival mode and making things happen. Uh, but we're talking about right over here between the first and second temple. But in the time of the Megillah, has the temple been built yet or not? Yeah. Okay. Remember, it's almost a unanimous no. The first, the first temple was destroyed for sure. We went into Babylon exile, but the second temple hasn't been built yet, correct? That's usually how it's taught. Now we're in for a surprise. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we're going to show you. Now, even though it might have been, whether it was or not, we're definitely out of the Babylonian time period. And let me go over the superpowers of the Middle East up until this time. There was, Ashur was the big superpower, the Assyrian Empire, around the 700s. They're the ones who exiled the ten tribes. A hundred years later come Babel. I'm purposely not writing years because it's not important. Ashur. Then comes the Babylonians who defeated Ashur. They become the superpower. They exile Yehuda, the remnant. Got that? Ashur. Babel. They're around for how many years? That was last week's year, but that's the year. Babel's in power for 70 years. And after Babel falls, now we have what's called Paras. I'll write this in English. We have a Persians 
these were the Babylonians. Babylonian. I think something like that. And this is Assyria. That's outside history, well known, and it matches beautifully with the Bible. It comes the Persian time period, and it's time um, to look at the Megillah now. Because what's the opening line of the Megillah? He's a Persian king, his name is Ahasuerus, and his kingdom in his time period from Hodu, India, to Kush, Ethiopia, and there were several decades under the Persian Empire where indeed they controlled that, that area. Everything but Egypt, pretty much. I mean, I'm sorry, every, everything but Greece. They had even Egypt. Egypt down to Ethiopia. Greece was always a big trouble for big wars, if you know your ancient history. The wars between Persia and Greece, they kept the arms industry moving for a couple of, dec- for a couple of centuries. You've heard of those battles? I think the Peloponnesian Wars or something like that. Battle of Marathon. Battle, there's, if you learned history, it's pretty boring, but that's the big... And it'll be important for the Megillah, for sure. What Persian kings are there? If you look in any history book, based on all the research that all the historians have done, the first Persian king, his name was Cyrus. The next Persian king, his name was Cambyses. This will be in every single book. The next Persian king is Darius, who has the same last name as Cyrus. I'm kidding. What's the last name? The Great. <laughs> Cyrus the Great, there, but they're not related. They're, but they're, they're wannabes, though. There's Cyrus the Great, Cambyses, Darius the Great, because he wasn't so great, Cambyses. <laughs> no, but Darius, that's much better. Then we have Xerxes. And then we have Arty, Arty Xerxes. That's enough. And if you want the dates, just for the fun of it, 538, 530, 522, 486, and 465. You'll find those in every history book. That has nothing to do with Chumash. The, the Bible, the dates in the Bible, or the events in the Bible, fit that perfectly. We related to that in the last week's year. There's nothing in the Bible that doesn't fit to that. In fact, that supports the Bible beautifully. The Midrashic interpretation of the events in the Megillah, don't see that at all. But that was the topic for, last, for the last year. Now, if we want to figure out who is Ahasuerus of the Megillah, and when, when's the story happening, so we have to figure out where does it fit. And we have a certain time frame in the Megillah as well. And we know he's not the first Persian king because we know exactly who the first Persian king is. In, in, in Tanakh as well. And that's going to be Koresh. Koresh is going to fit up beautifully with, with Cyrus. What we're going to do now is we're going to read Yirmiyot and try to understand what's the prophetic setting of Megillah Tester. We're going to read Yirmiyot Perak Chavtet, chapter 29. I want to review what we saw in chapter 25 for those who weren't in the last year. In chapter 29 in Yirmiyot, Yirmiyot throws the big bombshell. It's the fourth year of Yehoiakim. It's about 18 years before the temple was actually destroyed. And Yirmiyot, after trying to get the people to do proper repentance, because the people had repented to a certain extent, to a certain extent, Yirmiyot tries to get them to repent properly. And the main sin that Yirmiyot talks about is the lack of social justice. Their, their sacrifice worship is, one, is doing okay, but their behavior among each other has gone pretty bad. That's what Yirmiyot comes to explain. You think it's all about sacrifices. No, it's about your behavior. The people don't understand the message. And then Yermiel says, you know what? I've been yelling at you, and my colleagues have been yelling at you. You don't get the message. There's only one solution now. We call it Pachantofas, or you gotta, you gotta go. The only way you're going to learn is through serious rehab. And therefore, he tells them, 
For the next 70 years, this was in the fourth year of Yehoiakim, which was the first year of the king of Havel. That was the big... Yimriel's the, the, 70 years begin in chapter 25. And there he says, for the next 70 years, the Babylonians are sovereign of the whole Middle East. If you want to accept that, put up a white flag, you can stay in your land, etc. If you don't accept that, and you want to fight them, there goes your temple, there goes your land, and you go into exile. They don't listen, temple is destroyed, they go into exile. That's Yimriel in a nutshell. In chapter 29, it's already the first wave of exile is gone. It's Yel, um, it's going to be page 1080. 1080. From the beginning, we'll start. 1080. That, that first prophecy was during the time of Yehoiakim, the king who was king for 11 years. Yehoiakim dies in battle. His son Yehoiakim, better known as Yehoniah, is sent into the exile with all the important people, what's called the Harash Mazger, the elites. The elite, their uh, aristocracy, goes into exile. The poor people left behind. And Tzitkiel is appointed king by Bavel to be under the sovereignty. He's a vassal king. What did Tzitkiel do? He rebels against Bavel. Yimriel tells him not to rebel. He rebels anyhow. Yimriel tells Tzitkiel, because of that, you're going to go into exile as well, and there goes your temple. During this time period, there's communication, which we have many examples of it, between Jerusalem in Babylon, between the Jewish community in Israel and the Jewish community in Bavel, there's an exchange of letters. There's diplomatic mail. Yemel is going to take advantage of that diplomatic mail in chapter 29. He's going to send a very interesting letter, and we like to say this is the only prophecy of Yemel that, that the Jewish people have kept to meticulously. Let's see why. Okay. Chapter 29. These are the details of the letter that Yemriel sent to the elders of Yehuda who had been sent to exile in Yerushalayim. When? After the king Yehonia. Everyone's heard of him? He's mentioned in the Megillah, isn't he? But, and the, the king and the queen and all the servants and the ministers of Yehuda and Yerushalayim and all the industrialists, the Harash Mazger from Yerushalayim, and Pasuk Gimel says, it was sent, the person who sent it, who brought the mail. Remember, you go into Chutzlar to take a letter with you. Things haven't changed. And, and, and Tzidkeh was sending a letter to the king of Bavel. Yemriel slips the letter, says, give this to the head of the Jewish community. Pasuk Dalet. Here's the message. Um, this is the message that I'm sending to the entire exile that has gone into Bavel. What should you do in exile? Build houses. Don't live in tents. Don't live out of a suitcase. Build houses. Plant trees, plant vineyards, orchards. That you only do if you're going to be there for a long time. Um, get married, have children, set up family, set up a community. Um, and, and have children there. Don't become small. And take care Play, be political, but Yeshua Shlomo Ir, Pasuk Zayin, verse 7. Ask the welfare of the city. It means be, be kind to your captors over there because if you, ta- if you need to deal with them because you're there for a long time. Now, you see what I mean? That we've been, we've been meticulous on this one. This one more, than, more than even expected. Okay. And then he tells him in Pasuk Chet, is don't let your false prophets mislead you because the false prophets are saying, oh, you're coming back in a year or two. It's not going to be for so long. This exile is only temporary. 
You're coming back very soon. Don't listen to them. It's a long time. Patek Yod. Verse 10. Kichol Amar Hashem, ki lefil morlot adavar shivim shana, efkod etchem, vakimoti alechem et varayatov, lashiv etchem el hamachom hazeh. What's going to happen after 70 years? After what 70 years? After the 70 years of Babylonian rule. After the Babylonian Empire falls. What's going to happen? I'm going to, Efkod Otchem. Bashem Pakaret Sarah. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to remember my promise to you. And I'm going to do the, my good promise. I promise to redeem you. Your rehab will be over. I promise, as I promised, I'll redeem you after those 70 years. And then he says in Pasuk don't worry, I'm doing this for your own good. You think I'm punishing you? This exile process is really ultimately for your own good. Pasuk Yudbet, verse 12. Yimriel is giving a guide now what they need to do to come back. Yimriel isn't saying that after 70 years you're coming on a magic carpet right to Israel. He's saying, for the next 70 years you're stuck there. Build houses, communities, get yourself together. After 70 years, there's, you'll, ha- you'll have the opportunity to return. I'll give you an opportunity, but what do you need to do? You need to ask. And you, wa- you need to want to return. Does that make sense? Why does it make sense? Most ba- what was the whole reason for the exile? Because the behavior of the people in the land was bad. Not just, the, their ba- especially their behavior in relation to social justice and representing God as a nation. That's what yell- all the Nevi'im were yelling at them at. Besides their idol worship and all the other things. There's no point in bringing them back if they're not ready yet to be God's nation. And therefore, Yemri tells them, after 70 years, for the next 70 years, nothing to talk about. After 70 years, bring up a new generation, and when you're ready, and the 70 years are up, you ask nicely, show me you're prepared, I'll bring you back. Look at the next line, Pasuk Yud Gimel, verse 13. Look for me and you'll find me. That's a classic. Remember the Shichnot Tidushu Vatashama, if you know the Pasuk in Parshat Re, in chapter 12 in Devarim, about when it's time to build the Beit HaMikdash. When you build the Beit HaMikdash, the Shichnot Tidushu, look for God's Shechina, and then He'll come and show you where to build the, the Temple. Then God says, I'll make myself, I'll, I'll let you find me, God says. I'll bring your exile back from all the places that I sent you out from, and I'll bring you to this place of Israel back from the place I exiled you from. In a nutshell, what's Yemriel saying? You're in exile for the next 70 years until the Babylonian Empire falls. After that, I expect you to come back. But I I want you to want to come back and be ready to come back. What happens after 70 years? Now we have to jump to the book of Ezra. That's the historical setting. Now we'll see, I mean, that's the prophetic setting. The book of Ezra is way in the back. I think it's one of Esther's next door neighbors, Esther Daniel. Page 1837. 1837. The book of Ezra correlates perfectly with Yirmiyot. The opening line of the book, which also happens to be the last two lines of the book of Devarayamin. It says, What's it mean? And the first year of the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia. What's it mean, lichlot? What's lichlot mean? Like vaychulu? No, lichlot means when it was like vaychulu hashemayim verse. So the conclusion of. The conclusion of the prophecy of What was the prophecy of Yirmiyot? Not, not destruction of seven years, not, not even exile. Seven years of Babylonian rule. Those seven years are over when Babel falls and Persia comes into power. Persia is the new superpower. Just as Yirmiyot had predicted. 
And what happens in that year? Um, from here I'll just read quickly. God inspired the heart of Koresh, the new king of Persia, and he makes a major decision. He makes this edict. He makes this proclamation that anyone of the Jewish people is now allowed to go back and build their temple to God. And this is one of the neatest things in Chumash because we found in archaeology, it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. They found, now we want, they have found several copies of it, written in stone. You can find it's in, I, think, which I guess it's in the British Museum. Or, or I think probably, yeah, they're the ones who found it or took it. Um, <laughs> the, it's written, like, it's like really neat, but it's translated. You can find it every, muse, every it's on, online also. And there he says that all the nations that had been exiled by Babylonians, even earlier by the Assyrians, instead of continuing the policy that Babel and Assyria had of moving people away from their lands and trying to break, break up their connection to their land, all these ethnic groups are allowed now to return and build the temples for their gods. He wants to be Mr. Nice Guy. He's going to change the policy. Instead of having people rebelling and unrest, Persian policy will be religious autonomy for everybody. And let everyone do their own thing with their own God. They're not trying to force any type of idol worship. Everyone can worship any God they want. Pay your taxes. Don't rebel. Let us run the economy. You be good citizens. And that's Persian, and it works great. They build an empire. That, that approach builds them an empire. Among the nations that Koresh allows to rebuild their temple is the Jewish people. Now, Koresh is doing this for political reasons. A wise one. What is the prophecy saying? What are the Nevim saying? I see here the hand of God. He's, 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 the fact that Koresh now allows the Jewish people to return and build the temple is almost like Rav Cook saying the rise of nationalism in Europe in the late 1800s as, as a way of getting Zionism moving. All these nationalistic movements, Zionism becomes one of them. People can explain Zionism for political and national reasons. It's, it's a phenomenon happening worldwide in Europe, I mean, Europe-wide. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's happening all throughout Europe. And Jews just happen to fall into that. Or you can see the hand of God behind those events. That's what prophets always do. And it's not that one's right, one's wrong. They work hand in hand. What the book of Ezra is saying is Koresh's decision to allow the Jews to return and build a temple, I see in that the hand of God. And therefore, the prophets of that time period, we'll see them, Chagai and Zechariah, are going to encourage the people to return. I think we read that in the last year, but he says as follows, Pasuk Gimel, Anyone in the Jewish people in the empire who wants to go and return is now chartered, commanded, return to your land to Jerusalem and build a house for God. He's not giving sovereignty at all, is he? He's granting autonomy and he wants the Jewish people to build a temple for God. And he's very realistic. See Pasuk Dalad? We're not going to read it. You can look at it on your own. He says, anyone who's not making Aliyah, what should they do? Send money. Send money and gifts. You'd think it was written, you know, a couple of centuries, a century ago. But it's been here, it's been in every hotel room for the last couple thousand years. Now, look in Pasuk This is very important to appreciate Midrashim. We're so used to Midrashim. We, you, to appreciate a Midrash, you have to see what the Pesukim say. This is Koresh already. But the first reading. Pasuk Zayim. Vamelech Koresh. And then, what's happening? The Babylonians had 
taken out the vessels of the temple and brought them to Babel. And Nebuchadnezzar kept them in, the, in his palace in Babylon. They've been there for a long time. What's Korosh do? He goes to those treasures, takes them out of that archive, out of storage, gives them back to the Jewish people so the Jewish people can bring them back to, to the temple in Yerushalayim. Why is that a problem with the Midrash? What Midrash did you all learn? Remember? Bekelim, Bekelim, Shonim? What? Yeah. I'll explain what you're talking about. The Gemara Megillah talks about... Yeah, the big party. What was the party? What was the Siba Lam Siba? They call it in Hebrew. You ever hear that? Ma Siba Lam Siba? It's a classic saying in Hebrew. What was the reason for the party? Remember, it's a big party. Remember? And in the party, there's Kelim, Kelim, Shalim. What did they teach all of us? Based on the Midrash. Yirmiyah, what was he celebrating? Seven years are over, and look, the Jews didn't return. And what Kelim does he use at the party? He picks up Kelim for the Beit Midrash. And who participated? The Jewish people. And that's why what? What are they coming to explain? Why were the Jewish people almost destroyed? What's bothering Chazal? Why is it? They're looking for a reason. The Megillah doesn't, if you're looking for the hand of God, don't only find the hand of God when we get saved. Usually the hand of God is there when we're getting punished. Just like he saves us for a reason, usually he punishes. In, in general, if something bad happens to the Jewish people as a nation, as a people, it's usually because our behavior isn't ideal. What exactly we're doing wrong is easy. It's what someone else is doing wrong. Know that trick? When the Jewish people, something goes wrong, it's because of our behavior, but it's always what someone else is doing. I'm, I'm kidding, but <laughs> no, we don't... It, it's hard always to pinpoint exactly what it is, but there's always room for improvement. And therefore, what Korsh is saying, and what the, what, what's happening, I'm sorry, here, is that the Kelim and the Beit HaMikdash have already been returned. Way before, according to everybody, Miguel happens after this. When exactly, we can talk about soon. But the Kelim and the Beit HaMikdash are returned. The Jews are able to return and build a house. And in Pshat, Yirmiyel, um, Achashverosh doesn't need vessels from the Beit HaMikdash to throw a party. Remember, there's, it's a six-month party, which is not a party. And who's the party for? Chel Parasumadai. It's a party for the soldiers of Parasumadai in the third year of his reign. Now, if you know your outside history, there's a historical event which fits perfect with that. In Herodotus, is that how you explain it in English? He's a big Greek historian who writes about the Persians. He writes about Xerxes. Xerxes is Achashverosh. And the third year of his reign, he gathers a whole big army in Shushan. And the, about, they gather the army for over a year. And they begin a whole march to try to take over Greece. They cross the Bosphorus. They make this whole big uh, flotation bridge. It was the biggest army ever. It's the first big giant world war. And Xerxes tries to... His, his predecessor, Darius had lost the battle of Marathon against the Greeks. Darius wants to get it back. Take him over. He fails in that battle. But the big six-month party for the, all the soldiers is, not, is really a staging. The, the Megillah calls it a party. But that's cool. We'll, if we have time, we'll talk about that later on. In Pshat, there's no need to explain the Kelim coming from the Beit HaMikdash. And there's no reason to say that Achashverosh is throwing the party because, he, because he's worried about Yirmiyah's prophecy. Achashverosh got plenty... The Jews didn't listen to Yirmiyah. Why would Achashverosh be worried about him? No one listened to Yirmiyah. He says so. No one does. But what are Chazal, what are Chazal doing in the Midrash? Chazal were transposing the, what I see is the prophetic message of it, the hidden message of the book, and throwing it in a Midrashic way onto the events. Yeah, question. No, it could be. But, yeah, but let, me go back, let me go back to my main point. Yeah. It could be. But the question is when Chazal gives the Midrash and say the reason why we're almost destroyed is because we're dr- for some technical reason. Like a parking ticket. You know, 
We did something technically wrong. You're not allowed to drink from Kelim with the Beit HaMikdash. Or is there a thematic reason, which I think is obvious. What's the thematic reason? Because what does happen after Koresh's declaration? How many do return? A handful. Where does the majority stay? The majority stays in Bavel. And now we have a situation where from a prophetic point of view, what is God expecting the Jewish people to do? Right? To return and come back. And what do we find instead? Yeshno Amachad, Bufuzam Farad Bein Amim. Remember that passage from the Megillah? I'm assuming you know it. There's a nation scattered among nations. They don't listen to the king. It doesn't pay for the king. Who's, who am I quoting? Haman. Haman. Who's talking to? Asherosh. In a second voice, who's the Melech? And who's this Am? And who's talking? Understand? It could be that, that the reason, what? We don't only need a reason why God is about to, why God saves the Jewish people, we need a reason why they're almost destroyed. And then why after there's a reason almost destroyed, then why he saves them at the last minute. That might be what's behind the Megillah. And then we might be identifying, again, I live in Israel, so we're a little too Zionistic maybe here. But it might be there's something. You know what it would be like? Let's say there's a king who wants to, I'm, I'm, I'll first get the, the, the mashal. The Jewish people are chosen to represent God. Remember Brit Sinai? Covenant we have inside. God chooses us to be a Mamechet Kodesh. He sets aside a special land. The purpose of that land is going to be the place, because we're representing God not just as individuals, but also as a nation. To be a nation, you need a land. God sets aside a land for the Jewish people, where they're supposed to become that nation. But that nation is supposed to show the, what's called an Ola Goyim, like to other nations. They're supposed to bring God's name to all mankind. The, what's called the Krob Hashem Hashem. Hodul Hashem Kiru Bishmo. Hodiyu Bamim and we do that by what we say, how we act, but not just as individuals, also as a nation. We did a terrible job of that, and for that reason, God says, you're doing such a lousy job making my name known, you're, you're not marketing me very well at all. I have to send you into some retraining. I retrained you, it's time to come back and get back to work. God says, now let's come back to work. And what are the workers saying? We don't want to come. You know what it would be like? Let's say there was a king, who, or some rich person, who was showing off to everybody how great he was. And he makes a big party, etc. And he has a trophy wife. And he says, in the middle of the party, he wants to invite his trophy wife to come and show how beautiful he is because it makes him look good. And his wife decides, what? I don't want to come. And he gets really angry. See what we just did? It could be, again, it could be just coincidental. Or the question, why is that story in the beginning? Why is the king showing off who does Achashverosh think he is? He wants to make himself Melech Machem And that happens in real history as well. He gives a speech. Herodotus writes about it. That he says, I'm going to go to war against Greece and defeat them and I'm going to be the king of all kings, the greatest conqueror before Alexander the Great. That's what he wants to be. And in, in that, and there's a situation where the Jewish people have a chance, an opportunity to return to their own land and make God the king and make people know about God. Instead, they stay in the Persian Empire and they help Achashverosh becoming king. The question, who's switched? What's switching around? I'll, I'll try to show that inside of them very soon. And that's the question when we read that story in the beginning. Is it, oh, here's what happened? Or is it a strange party, a 180-day party, in seven days? Like, how long did it take to build the Mishkan? The Mishkan, how long did it take to build? No, we celebrated seven days. It took, it took six months to build. Remember from Yom Kippur until Rosh Chodesh Nisan? It's about 180 days. That's, that's six months, isn't it? Yeah. About 180 days, and then there's a seven-day party. 
And something special? And, and that's the question. Is there a parallel between what's happening there? It, could it be that Ahasuerus' palace is described in words which are very similar to the way the temple was described? There's a chatzer penimid, chatzer chitzona. Remember Esther going in? What's it like? That was, that's an obvious one, isn't it? When Esther goes in, it's like the Kodesh Kodeshim. If you go in without being called in, there's a special ritual and not everyone can come in. And if you come in the wrong way, you're, you're put to death. Okay. There's a lot of imagery in the Megillah which reflects the temple. Yeah. Okay. But, 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 the Sukkim you're talking about is going to be in about 10 minutes. Okay? At the end of the Megillah. But first to do that, we have to read Zechariah. What I want to show you now, if you know Zechariah, because Zechariah talks about this, you'll appreciate what's happening in the Megillah much better, especially a lot of key words. I just, what I did now, I try to suggest a possible, I'm not saying for sure this is right, but it could be. It's a, at best, at worst case, it's Purim Torah, which is also <laughs> legitimate. Also, Shtikla Zionism. But there's, it could be that a hidden, a hidden message behind the Megillah might be that the reason why we're about to be destroyed is because God gave us opportunity to return and we didn't return. And Chazal might be saying that in a Midrashic way. Why does, it, why does Chazal spill the beans? For the same reason? The Megillah doesn't spill the beans. That, that's, that's the power of satire all the time. Okay. Now, I'm going to read that quickly. It's what's called in Hebrew, you're, you're saying it wasn't the reason, it was a sign. You've heard that, Sibat Siman? Our participation in the party is not the reason we were punished. It's a sign that we didn't care about what's going on. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're folks, but you could, you could understand that Midrash of Chachamim simply out of a problem of affluence. But here it's more than just affluence. Here it's that caring. If someone drinks from the Kelim of the Beit HaMikdash, it means you don't care about the Beit HaMikdash. You don't respect it. And at a, tech, at a practical level, it's by taking, by using a vessel of the Beit HaMikdash. But at a thematic level, a wider level, it means not caring about the ability to return and build it. But we see it's not going to be just about temple. It'll be about, about being a nation, representing God. I'll go over a quick part of history. They return in the book of Ezra. They break ground on the temple, and then there's an intifada. The local population, there's plenty of people not Jewish in the land, don't like what's going on, they want to participate. Through Bevel, their leader says, no, you can't come with us. They start complaining. And for 18 years, that was last week's topic, for 18 years, they stopped the building. Then, after 18 years, after Cyrus is around for nine, then Cambyses, finally there's a new king, Darius, Dayabesh, in the second year of his reign, there's a new opportunity for the Jewish people to build the temple. And the two prophets who talk about it are Haggai and Zechariah. Take a look at the book of Haggai, or Zechariah, their next door neighbors. Page. We'll start with Haggai. We'll read the opening line of Haggai, which is page 1,313. Oh, I'm sorry. 1379. If you want to do a it's two chapters. Shortest book, I think, in Tanakh. Oh, well, that is probably shorter, but it's harder. Haggai, real simple, easy Hebrew, two-chapter book. Opening line is all we need, because we have a date. Bishnach time the Dayavish, the second year of Darius. Dayavish, Darius has got to be the same king. Okay, the Persian king. In the sixth month, first day of the, of the month, um, what happened? Haggai had a nevua given to Zerubbabel, who's the political leader, and Yeshua is the chief rabbi of the Kohen. Pasuk, Bet. What are the people saying? 
The people are interpreting the events. This is no time to build the temple. Guess what Haggai has to say? You're wrong. It is time to build the temple, but you can't wait for God to do everything for you. You have to take an initiative. He says, start chopping down some wood, start making, make an effort. And he promises them, if you do that, God will return your prosperity to you. He'll return your sovereignty to you. But you have to take the first step. That's Haggai in a nutshell. In fact, you know what day they break ground on the temple? They break ground on Hanukkah. In chapter 2, verse 10. Verse, chapter 2, verse... What's the date? I think we might have done that share here. In, um, yeah, chapter 2, verse 10, page 1381. On the 24th of the ninth month, the 24th of Kislev, Haggai has a nevoah. And on that day, in verse 15, it says, that's the day that they started putting rock, stone on top of stone, and building the second temple. They break ground on the second temple in the second year of Daryavesh on Hanukkah. And later, a couple hundred years later, that's when the Cheshmanayim picked that day to celebrate Hanukkah as well. Zechariah is Haggai's contemporary. He also encourages the people to build. And the Pasuk we saw last week, about the 70 years, Zechariah says, in the second year of Daryavesh, it's been 70 years since the temple was destroyed. That's how we learned those 18 years that we played with last time. And, please help us out this time. And this time God listens. And remember the Haftar from Hanukkah from Zechariah? God tells the people of Israel to be happy, not to be sad. My Shekhinah is returning. Zechariah gives tremendous hopes for the Jewish people in the second year. That's the first six chapters of Zechariah. Chapter 7 of Zechariah, a famous one and a famous question. It's two years later. It's the fourth year of Dayavish. We're later told in the book of Ezra, in chapter 6, we're told that they actually finished building the temple in year 6 of Darius. Understand? From year 2 to year 6 is four years of construction. It takes four or five years to build the temple from year two to year six of, of Darius. That's when it's built. In the middle of the construction, there's a, a group, a uh, mishlachat. Mishlachat is a, a mission, a delegation. A delegation coming from Bavel, and they have a big question for the rabbis in Jerusalem. They don't know what to do now. You know what the problem is? Yeah. Should we continue fasting on Tisha B'av or not? Okay. Up until now, they've been fasting. For the last seven, we'll read it inside. They've been fasting for the last 70 years. And now, what, they want, what do they want to know now? Is this it, right? We finally have redemption. What's the Nafkamina? What, what does redemption mean to them? The temple is being built in Jerusalem. What's that mean to now? Nine, nine days of summer camp aren't going to be wasted anymore. Gonna, was, they're, they're planning. What's going to be Tisha B'av next year? Understand? And maybe people won't learn anything. Now, there's no seum. No reason to make a, you know, the seum trick during the nine days. There's a, you're not supposed to eat milk flesheks on the nine days. But if you have a, 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 like a seum, then it's okay. So that's when people actually learn so they can do a seum on the nine days. Okay. Now, chapter 7. Okay. It's year 4 of Dayavesh. We can read quickly. Page 1390. 1390, I'm sorry. 1390. And it talks about the letter being sent. We'll skip right to verse 3. This is the delegation coming and asking a question. To the, to the priests in the temple and to the prophets, what should I do? Do I continue to fast in the fifth month, that's the month above? Should I limit myself in that month like I've done for the last 70 years? We see that the Jewish people kept the custom of fasting for the last 70 years. What do you think the answer is going to be? We're going to find a Jewish answer. This is the Jewish answer. Pasuk Dalit, Tell the people as follows, and to Konim, 
Kitante Vesafod Bahamishu Vashvi, Vizesh Shivim Shana, Tsum Tantuni Ami. God says, For the last seven years you've been fasting on the fifth month and the seventh month. Right? Have I been fasting? What's God asking? God answers the people on, Do we have to fast? You know what God answers? Has I been fasting? But God's saying in a beautiful way, He's saying, Did I tell you guys to fast? Did God, who decided that Jewish people have to fast? Whose decision was that? The people decided. That was a Jewish custom. The Jewish people decided to remember, to remember the temple's destruction, we're going to fast. The Bible didn't say to fast. The Bible says to be good, to be just, to be kind, etc. To represent God. The people, because the temple was destroyed, began a beautiful custom of fasting. Now they want to know, do we continue fasting? What God says, I didn't tell you to fast. I didn't tell you to eat. He says, and when you eat and drink, you ask me? Okay. He says, you're the people. That's for you. That's for muggles. That's for... That's for people like you. See the next line? Eating food, that's your problem, not my problem. But if you're asking what I want you to do, boy, I'd have a list. God's got a whole list for them. Listen to the list. Post exam. If you want to know what's going to be, if you want to know what God wants from you, if you want to fast, it's your problem. You deal with that. You started it. You that's your problem. If you want to know what God wants you to do, you know what that list is? Before the temple was destroyed, I sent my prophets and they gave you a whole list of behavior that I expected from you. And if that behavior you didn't follow, that's why I sent you out of here. If you want to know what I want you to do, just read Nebim Rishonim, which we call Nebim Achronim. He says, just see, his, God says, been there, done that. We've been there already. You, you know already what God wants from you. Read Yishayel, read Michal, Hosea, Mos, Yimriel, read them. That, the reason why it was destroyed because you didn't listen to them. Now you're coming back. You want to know how you need to act? Read them. And in case you forgot, he's going to give a quick little crash course. That's going to be Pasachet. The words are going to be, the words, we're going to hear them in the Megillah later on. What's that mean? What's the main thing to do? Do just, justice and just and truth, etc. Be kind and generous one to the other. Don't oppress widow, stranger, orphan. Don't be mean to one another. Don't think mean to one another. What happened? I'll just translate loosely from verse 11. In the first temple, they didn't listen. They didn't listen to the Nevi'im. God got angry, sent them out into exile. And that's why you've been suffering for the last 70 some years. And now God's saying, now I'm giving you a new opportunity to return. Now that you've returned, what does God want you to do? You want to eat fast, that's up to you. What God wants you to do, there's a whole list. And he gives, in a nutshell, that was the main, that's the thrust of Yeshayahu, Yemriyahu, etc., what we call social justice and the type of a model nation. That's, God says in chapter 8, just like I went out of my way to punish you, he says, I'm going out of my way now too, to save you. And he goes on and on about, uh, look in Pasuk Gimel, for example, which is important. Kichot, top of page 1392. I'm returning to Zion. My Shekhinah will be in Yerushalayim. And Yerushalayim will be called a city of truth and God's mountain, a holy mountain. How can God promise? What, what things in this passage can God promise? He says, Shafti Otsion. Can God keep that promise? The Shekhanti Betoch Yerushalayim? God can do that. How about calling Jerusalem the city of truth? If we put up a big sign in the entrance of that new bridge in Yerushalayim and says, this is the city of truth, would that make it a city of truth? No. Yeah. Yeah. God can't make it a city of truth. 
He can, he can, what God's saying, what God's saying here is a condition. I'm willing to return to Yerushalayim. I'm willing to bring my Shekhinah back. On what condition? That Yerushalayim becomes the city of truth. And Tzai is going to follow that approach over and over again. He's going to make a promise. It's called a conditional promise. Yeah. Here's, here's this, the second one. The second, yeah. We call it the third one, yeah. And next episode, they'll call it the fourth one. Yeah, yeah. For, for sure. I mean, he's saying, he's hoping that God's house will be rebuilt. And then he talks to the famous Pasuk that there'll be time that young children will be playing in the streets of Yerushalayim again. This is the one in the old city they write. And old people watching on a bench on the side. Famous Pasukim, which we don't have time for. Pasuk Zion. I'm going to bring my people back from all corners of the earth and I'm going to bring them. They'll return and dwell in Jerusalem. What's that? Where's that from? Isn't that Sinai? The, the, the main covenant between God and the people are He's our God, we're His people. We're a nation representing God. What's Bebetu Bitzdaka doing? Is that how God's going to do it or what we need to do? Yeah. That's the condition again. That we did now, he goes on and on. I want to show you where he makes that condition crystal clear. Skip all the way to in Pasuk Yedal, he says, just like I went out of my way to punish you, I'm going out of my way to save you. Pasuk uh, Tetzayin, verse 16. In case it wasn't clear enough, now he makes it crystal clear. What do you need to do? Now it's not even a hint anymore. What do you need to do? Be a society of truthness, of justice, of righteousness. Don't start thinking bad things about each other. Oh, he didn't call me, I didn't call him, what's he up to? Oh, he's out to get me. Don't think, don't... Don't be in that frame of mind. Um, Don't enjoy swearing falsely to trick people and things like that. That's what God hates more than anything else. Those are, that behavior, that lack of good behavior, that's what God hates and that's what caused the first temple to be destroyed. Again, a quick summary of Yimriyahu and Yechazkel Nishayel. Now, how about, how about new? Do we fast? What's going to be with camp? This is what he says. I'm sure most of you have heard this Pasuk before. Better known as the, the four fast days. Remember the four fast days? Asar Betevis, Asar Shivas Batamos, and Tzum Gedalia. The four fast days, they began already at the end of the first temple period. Tzachari is saying now those four fast days possibly could be abolished. Listen to how he says so. Okay. Those fast days are going to turn into holidays. Great days. What's that little phrase at the end? That's the condition. On what condition will these fast days turn into holidays? Got that? In essence, what's Hari saying? The fast days are not to remember what happened. The fast days are to remember why they happened. That's the purpose of a fast day. So until you've learned your, mes- your lesson, you keep continue fasting. When you understand and you do emet v'shalom, and you have it right, then there's no reason to fast anymore. Then you can celebrate you've accomplished your goal as a nation. But Hari doesn't finish there. He's got a little extra punch, a little messianic here. Pasuk chaf. A time will come not only when the Jewish people will return to the land, but other nations will come to the land of Israel. Other nations are going to come and gather and come to Jerusalem to look for God. Remember Isaiah chapter 2? It's the same idea. Well, how does it begin there? 
והיה באחרית הימים, נכון, היה בית השם ראש הרים וניסה מגבעות. It's a famous one, it's on the, down the street there, on, outside the United Nations, ולא יש את הגוי הגוי חרב. They just leave us out of it. Now, פסק חבט, ובואו עמים רבים, I said we read that, didn't we? We read 22? We'll read it again. ובואו עמים רבים וגויים עצומים לבקש השם צבאות בירושלים, לחלות פני השם. All nations, many nations are going to come and gather to look for God in Jerusalem. They didn't finish it. That's, not only the Jewish people return to the land, will be, we'll be a light to other nations. He's, he's following Yeshayahu here. The Jewish people will fulfill their goal of being a model nation, properly representing God to other nations. פסח אבגימו, כל מה השם צבאות, בימים ההמה, אשר יחזיק לעשרה אנשים מכל לשונות הגויים. There'll be ten non-Jews waiting in line in Jerusalem, at some center, some... Um, Religious guidance center. It'll be so crowded in Jerusalem, people be crowding around just to hold the, the corner uh, of a beged of an Ishihudi, hoping, give me some guidance. It's, it's an exaggeration a little bit. You follow? That's how, crowd, that's how successful the Jewish people will be. It'll be a buyer's market. No. That little phrase, Ishihudi, we just read, you can guess how many times it's in the Bible. <laughs> you guessed already, right? Twice. Twice in the Bible. Here and in the Megillah. Right. Where is Ishudi supposed to be? Where is he supposed to be? In Yerushalayim. Making a name for who? For God. Right? Outside his temple. Where do we find an Ishudi? Well, we say it so proudly, right? What do we say? Ishudi ayah? The Shushana Bira. The word Bira doesn't mean capital in the Bible. Bira in Divra Yamim. Want to look at it? We don't have time, but we take my word for it. Chapter 29 in... in uh, Someone can make sure I didn't make a mistake. Chapter 20, the beginning of chapter 29 in 1 Chronicles. Twice it's there, and I think later on in verse 16 or 17, the word bira refers to the Beit HaMikdash of Shlomo's building, the David's building for Shlomo. Bira is the word used exclusively up until this time period to describe, even in the Mishnah, in the Sechem Midot, bira is the name for the Beit HaMikdash. Bira means a, a, pal- a palace or a big building, but it's used exclusively to describe the Beit HaMikdash until we get to Shushan. What replaced the Beit HaMikdash now? This Ishudi, instead of being in Yerushalayim, he's in Shushan. Instead of working in the Beit HaMikdash, he's in Achashverosh's palace. And what's the guy's name? Mordechai. Mordechai, Jewish name? Nowadays it is. Back then? Yeah. But that name comes up lots of times in the Bible. In the first, there's not one Jew named Mordechai in the first temple period. Not at all. It's not a Jewish name. But there's a lot of Babylonian kings named Mordechai. Mem Reish Dalet is Marduk. He's the head of the... It's chapter 39 in Isaiah, if you want to take a quick look. And the last paragraph in the book of Malachim. Evil Morodach. The last, last paragraph in the book of Malachim. Evil Morodach is the king, Babylonian king, who gets the Choni out of jail. And Morodach Baladan ben Baladan sends a message to... Um, sends presents to Chizkiel in chapter 39 in Yeshayahu. But memory said that's, a, that's a, the name of a Babylonian god. Well, the Persians later, except in, in, in Cyrus, it's similar, he talks about Marduk left and right. Now, what might that Pasuk be saying? If I never saw the... Remember my opening question? What ears are we listening to the Megillah with? If the writers of Megillah Tassir assume that his readership knows Sefer Zechariah, and this is the very last Nebuah of Zechariah, this is it. The fourth year, of the, this is it. And what was Chari expecting to happen after this Nebuah? The Jews should return and become the nation that God wanted. You know what happens historically after this event? 
We build a temple, and guess what happens? Nothing. Two ge- historically, two generations later, this is t- Darius. This is the story that we just read. If this is Achashverosh, I'm sorry, if this is Daryavesh, then the second year of Darius is when they build the temple, from year 2 to 6. There's big hopes for the Jewish people. The next event in the Bible is year 7 of Artachshasta. Artachshasta. In the Bible, in, in Sefer Ezra, we jump from here to here. Now, those of you in last week's year saw what Seder Olam did to this. Remember what they did? They just crunched the whole thing and say it's two different kings, which can't, it just can't be. But what did Chazal crunch? They crunched this whole time period of Xerxes, which fits perfectly with Achashverosh. If you take off the Aleph, like we don't, you have Chashrash. You ever been to Jerusalem and been on Rehov Lincoln? It's near the hotels? Yeah. Why is it called Lincoln and not Lincoln? Because that's what happens in language when you take one language and translate it to the letters of another language. Happens to us in Yiddish, happens to us in every language. It's the Persian words. In Greek, it comes out one way. And then from Greek to English, it comes out another way. From Persian to Hebrew, it comes out a different way. That's why Achashverosh and Xerxes are very similar. You know, remember the, add the Aleph in the beginning? Thump off the first Aleph they always put in in Aramaic in the beginning. Chashrash, or Xerxes. But Achashverosh is easy to identify with, with and year-wise, it fits out perfect. And it could be that when does the story of Mikilat Esther really happen? Right after Zechariah. And right after the temple is finally built, and right after God has all these expectations for the Jewish people, everything I told you fits nicely. The, the classic opinion of Chazal put Achashverosh over here. They make this Achashverosh. They put him between Koresh and Dayabesh. Everything I'm telling you fits nicely there as well. Because at least they should have returned. So maybe the temple's not built yet, but they could have returned. But if, if we look historically and match the dates better, it makes much more sense if it happened here after the Beis HaMikdash was built. And after we have all these tremendous hopes for the return of God's people to the land, God went out of his way to bring them back and allow them to build the temple. We finally have a Persian king who's sympathetic with us. And what's the reaction of the Jewish people? And What point is there in keeping them? And now we have a reason. Maybe a reason. Maybe now I can understand why was it this anti-Semitism started coming out. What allowed Haman? Now, Haman might not have been his real name. If all, the, all the names there. Esther. Can I, remember, her real name isn't Esther. It says so. Her name's Hadassah. But for some reason, Megillah calls her Esther, either because Ishtar is another Persian god, or also, Onuchia Esther Panai from Shirat Hazinu. We don't have time to read that. But in Shirat Hazinu, Hester Panim is not God not watching. It's God not listening to our prayers. It's God not, it's God not helping. When God says, I'm going to hide my face from you, He says, you've been lousy in your covenantal relationship, and therefore don't expect me to come help you. And that's what's happening. God's going out of his way sometimes to punish us unless we learn. The answer to that, Hester Panim, is Olam, it's to learn your history. So it could be that the whole story of the Megillah happens when exactly during the time when the Jewish people, everything was ripe, God, every, God did everything he needed to do to make things, to bring us back. And what was the Jewish people's reaction? What was it? What did you say? Perfect? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> or I said episodic, but it's even better. We shouldn't surprise us one bit, should it? If we know our Jewish history. Now, what? Yeah, what are we? We're part of it. And listen to the words in the Megillah. Okay? But the, 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 what do they say? Remember? And the language, what language is speaking? Remember at the end, when, when, what was the reason why, 
why do we have to get rid of Vashti? Remember what the advisors tell, tell Hashverosh? What was so bad? What's going to happen if, if, if she does what she does? Right? Right? What's going on? All the husbands, what's going on? Right? That, 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 that's fairy tale. Right? Because one queen, right? Hillary doesn't listen to her husband. Therefore, everyone, what do you call it? Every wife's going to rebel against her husband? What, what's what's going to be? There's no logic to that. You can't make an ukimta. No, but ukimta is You can't make, oh, she's different because she's the queen's wife or she's you know, Nefla Nessa's granddaughter or something. What? Yeah. Who is? Oh, it could be. That's in Drash. But it, in the story, it in the story, it's just so strange. But that idea that other people will learn from her behavior, well, that's the Bible. That's the Jewish people, right? Right? So here's the action of one person can have an effect on a whole nation, on, a, on the whole empire. Here's one nation chosen to do something. If, if God's own nation doesn't listen to him, what do you expect from the rest of mankind? Why did God pick a nation? No. Remember, the McGill never spilled the beans, I think, for a good reason. That's the whole power of satire. You can never, don't, in a good satire, you're never going to spill the beans. You can make a lot of good nights. You can sound like a fairy tale. To make, and you can say really strange things to get to the point to wake, wake up and smell the hummus. Understand? Right? There's something going on there. And there can be lots and lots of hints to it. That's why I opened in the beginning. There's some, it's not regular history, the book. And if it doesn't fit perfectly with all the names, etc., don't be surprised, because every name is meaningful. Now, I want to conclude with, I think, which is the, I think, pretty strong proof, or support, at least. We know the story of the Megillah. There's a lot of imagery of, of, a, of a temple. Remember, we switched things around in the end. In, in, in Halacha, what do we turn, what, turns, what replaces Shushan? Where do we celebrate Shushan Purim? Bottom line. In Yerushalayim. And what walled cities count? Tafka? Walls from the time of Yeshua Benun. Chazal doing everything to bring Israel back into the picture. Aren't they? It sounds like a holiday has nothing to do with the land of Israel. And they turn to everything to do with the land of Israel. But the biggest question is going to be, what's with this? What's Mishulach Monos have to do with anything? I understand celebrating, fine, you know, happening, saying hallel. What's this Mishulach Monos? Ishlu Do we see that? Yeah. Did we see that phrase, Ishlu and Zechariah, boy, did we see it. Over and over again. And taking care of the poor. Not just taking care of the poor, and being kind to one another. Right? And I don't think bad things about your neighbors. It's not just about Aliyah. It's not just pure Zionism. It's, it's, the, nature, it's, the, it's the whole people. It's to be worthy to return. It's not just, God just doesn't need people living in the land. They need people living in land properly. Now, look at the end of the Megillah. We win the victory. Remember, Purim, Shushan Purim, the whole thing, 14th, 15th. I'm sorry, one little historical thing. Remember? Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishimini. Then we think, Asher Hoglam, Yerushalayim, Hint, 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 Imagola. That's again, that's to wake up and smell the chum. That's another Pasek. That's hinting to something. Now, does that fit historically that Mordechai? Mordechai, Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishimini, Asher Hoglam, Yerushalayim. Could it be that Mordechai was exiled from Jerusalem? If, this, if, this, if the Megillah is here, if this is seven years after the exile, or this is seven years after the exile, we're talking about some 150 years after the exile, 120 years. Could it be Mordechai was in the exile? Yeah. But that exactly explains why we go back four generations. Why do we go back all the way to Kish? Besides the Kesher to Shaul, which is also deep, but Mordechai ben Yer ben Shibi ben Kish, Asher we're going to go back to his ancestor who was exiled. And we're four generations, which is perfect with history. Understand? Okay. But Mordechai, historically, this fits perfect. I'm showing you every historical detail. If you know your outside history, 
It's only these two Persian kings, Darius and Xerxes, controlled Mihodu Kush. Cambyses, Cyrus never got that far, nor did Cambyses. Chorus tried to take Egypt and he had some trouble. Cambyses messed up even more. Darius got things moving, that's why he's called the Great. And then Xerxes tried to, it fell apart in the middle of his reign. Because he lost that battle that he went to. In fact, he probably needed, we're not going to do that, most likely the scapegoat for losing. In the third year of his reign, he makes this big, he makes this big, he, he, he makes this big military move against, against the Greek. They crossed the Bosphorus, a big battle, in the Battle of Salamis in 479 BC. Like six years after his reign, he loses terribly. His army retreats, and, and he goes into seclusion, and it could be he was looking for a scapegoat. And that, that makes a lot of sense that they picked the Jewish people to be a scapegoat because you can't trust them, they're over the place. But there might, there's a very good historical setting for, a, for blaming the Jews for a terrible fiasco and where the Navi is taking that fiasco and that hatred of the Jews and the threat that they're all going to be killed or punished or wiped out and say, God's telling you, learn from your history, something's going on. There's, there's a real historical setting which could really explain the Megillah, even though the, the actual events of the Megillah are written very pompously, I guess, in a, in a, in a fairy tale way, manner. But again, to make that point. No. We have 10 minutes left. I want to do, yeah, question quickly. Wait, wait, why don't we? No, uh, two things. I think the, when you say the rabbis, who do you mean? Do you mean the last two, three hundred years? You're talking about? No. Listen. Listen. The midrashim. I can show you most of the midrashim fit, fit with the same thing. The halachah midrashim, shushan purim to Yerushalayim and bimot Yeshua benun. What did we do wrong? The kelim kelim shonim, putting the blame. What was it? Oh, who's worrying about Yirmiyot seventy years? Achashverosh. Who should be worrying about Yirmiyot seventy years? The Jewish people. So we put what we should be thinking, we put into... into Chazal are treating it the same way that the Megillah does, in a satirical way. But they're only hinting to them, hoping the reader's going to catch on. Now, why we got that message for 2,000 years, now we see why we get drunk. <laughs> it could be. I'm half in jest, maybe. We, we, who says they're avoiding it? Who's they? No, no. What happened... Listen, there's, there's 2,000 years of history in the meantime. The Jewish people are in exile. They don't have the outside sources. They don't have the old... The same thing... We talked about that in the last year, about the missing years. Seder Olam's approach of the years, which is midrashic, and very beautiful, meaningful, which makes a lot of sense when you understand how it developed, all of a sudden is it understood not as a midrashic work, but as actual history. And then it becomes standardized history of the Jewish people. And we teach it from grade, from grade one, from, grade, from the beginning. And it becomes, I call, party line. Yeah, why are things changing? I think it relates to the fact that we came back to Israel. There's, there's a renaissance in, in Bible study. And, and it began in Israel the last 1,500 years or so. It was, it, was, it was happened first in Germany with the wrong people, and with Bible critics, but it picked up in Israel in the last couple, several decades. It's picking up like crazy in Israel, and all of a sudden we find new things. Rediscovery things. It's that, that's, that, that's a topic for a whole, for a whole discussion. Was why are there all these things? If you've been reading all this new literature on the Bible, both religious and non-religious, but even more religious, there's a whole new renaissance of, of deep Bible study where we find the coolest things. Almost like it was written by God, some of them. It's like, really? It's, it's an amazing work. There's these chiasms and stuff. Forget the Bible codes. I'm talking about real meaningful stuff, not statistical errors. But, but the, you, you, have, you have real good stuff, and it's coming to life again. That's part of, you know, like a, they call it ongoing revelation, whatever the fancy word's for it. There's a process. It might even be part of redemption, maybe. Yeah. Ah, because I t- Judaism is a Catholic marriage. Did you discuss that ever? 
It's a contract that God can't break. Okay. Understand? But they hold, the Goyim hold, it's a, it's a Protestant marriage. And then, you know, welcome, then there's, and there's a new covenant. You know, and, and they change the whole thing around. But we hold, and Yermiel holds, there's a, that's why Yermiel's got to talk about it being a Catholic marriage. He says, Yermiel in chapter 33 talks about how this covenant will be forever, no matter how bad it's going to be. Yermiel's main message is, it's not game over with the temple being destroyed. But the relationship is always there. We're not, we're going to be, we can be broke, we can be separated. You follow? We might not get along all the time, but we can never, it can never be over forever. Can never get Ultimately, we'll return. Hopefully, when we're deserving. If we're not deserving, God will have to move things around until we learn the hard one. Yeah, question? It's a different artashasta. Which one? In the beginning, Parag Dalad? Oh, and that's, you're reading Parag Dalad, hey, in Vav. That, yeah, yeah we, we discussed that. That was the one. That was the focus of last time's share. I'll just go over it in a minute. That they came back in the time of Koresh. Here, they came back and started building Intifada, and they stopped building from the time of Koresh till Daryavesh. And he's the missing king. And then, and that, 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 that's we figured out all those years in between. And then it says in the reign of Achashverosh, in the first year of his reign, they wrote a hate letter against the Jews. And it's not clear from that pasuk is it this or this. Is, this, is, this, is it this king or this king? But now, it make, if it's, it's the next king after that. It's Pasek Zabav after Pasek He, right? Therefore, it makes sense it's this king. So it could be at the same time, this same Achashverosh of the Megillah, in the beginning of his reign, there was already hatred against the Jews. No, then we go to Aramaic in Pasek Zayin. Uh-huh. It's a different, it's a, it's a, it should be a different chapter. That's, that's a letter called Yigeret Rachum, which is probably Cambyses. It's a different Artechsasta. It's a different... It's not the same Artachshasta as this one. It's the same different one. That's what, Artachshasta is like a general name for all the kings. But that, that's, you get Rahum, that's a big mess, that letter. Yeah, but it's, it, that, that letter, that letter is all the, all the thing. I can, after the show, I'll go over it with you. Oh, this is, here. The Jews returning in Koresh, a small group come, a couple thousand, and then, and then Darius, maybe a couple more, and the, big, and the big wave comes with Ezra later on. Ezra comes about 20, 30, 40 years later. This begins the second temple period. A couple hundred years later is the Hasmideans, and then the Romans come, and then destruction of the temple some 500 years later. The, t- the mission begins at the end of the first temple period and the Talmud after that. We're talking about three, four hundred years before the Talmud now. So a lot of them stayed behind. Oh, in Bethel, sure. The center, there's a major Jewish community in Bethel all, all the way through the second temple period. And the time of the Hasmideans, the center finally moves to Israel. And soon after it goes back to Bethel again. But there's a major Jewish presence in Bethel. I told you, they took Yermiel seriously. Without the 70 years. They were machmer. Maybe a year means, maybe a year means really, you know, a thousand years or something. In there. They don't come back, yeah. I'll show you a great Kuzari if you want to later on. The Kuzari, Rabbi Levi, in his book, where he explains all these things, he explains the reason why Bait Shani went wrong was because they didn't return. It's a Mesechet, it's a Mesechet Yoma as well. It's a, we don't have time, yeah, quickly, because I want to get to that punchline. That, there's not only one message in the Megillah. There's multiple messages. There's no doubt seeing the hand of God behind our events is there and taking responsibility is there and God racking in hidden ways. All those are there. Okay? I'm not saying there's only one message. That's what books and facts have multiple, multiple layers of messages. But there's, a, there's an underlying message. All, everything they always learn is fine. But there's an undercurrent there which is historic. Which, there's, all those messages are with the Megillah by itself. When you look at its historical context, now I have five minutes to show you what I think is the neatest proof. At the end of the Megillah, there's no more Hamans, and no one's paying attention. Correct? When you were a kid, remember? Hamans, you went. No more Hamans, no one pays attention. And everyone's hungry, 
Let's get this over with. Remember? Okay, now, we, we, Mordechai sets the laws of Apurim. What, what are the laws of Apurim according to the Megillah? It's Yimei Mishteve Simcha, remember? In chapter 9, verse 20. Look at, go finally, we'll read one passage from the Megillah finally inside. Supposed <laughs> to be sure on the Megillah. What page is the Megillah? The end of the Megillah. 1800 and? 1800? 1800? Okay, so yeah, page 1800, perfect. Three laws of Purim. Taking sad days and turning them into holidays. Correct? Days that were one of, of sadness and, and sorrow and almost destruction. Turning them into That's Purim. No Megillah reading yet. Megillah wasn't written yet. Understand? Now, that's the thing. And who started this minhag? The people. Mordechai started it. Esther. And he tells other people, everyone should do this. And it makes sense for that generation to do it. Now, Mordechai decides, we want this holiday to be eternal. Not just a, you know, just for that generation, which is fine. But there's something major here going on. Um, and then it goes, okay, okay. So finally, in verse 29, Pastor Haftet. V'tichsov Esther ha'maka b'atavichayo Mordechai Yehudi et kol tokef l'kayim et igarat ha'purim azot ha'shenit. One of the things Megillah is trying, one of the reasons Megillah is being written, it's trying to encourage the people to keep this law, keep this minhagim. If the book tells you, Kimu v'kiblu ha'yudim, that's what's called Bichalken atashomei alav. If the book has emphasized everyone's doing it, everyone's keeping Purim, you see exactly why it's written. Remember, the Gemara talks about that. Is, is Esther going to be a Jewish holiday? Is, is Purim going to be a Jewish holiday? It's up for grabs. In the, a generation or two later, is this going to catch on or not? One of the main reasons that Miguel is being written to make sure the holiday catches on. And we say everyone's doing it. Remember? But we see that Esther has to write another letter to encourage the people to keep it. I think it's also why to keep it. What makes, this, what makes this holiday more than a holiday for that generation? What makes this holiday eternal? What gives us the message for all generations? That's the question. If it's going to be an eternal holiday, there's going to be something there more than just one city, one generation, or one time period was saved. And this is what she explains. Pasuk Lamed. She sends letters to all the Jews, where? What does she send in the letter? We've all seen this before, right? How do we understand it? Like, like how are you doing? Like, that's the, like the opening line. What I want to suggest, that's not the opening line, because why tell us about the opening line and miss the content? The content of the letter is Divrei Shalom Vemet. And if you know Zechariah, you know exactly what Divrei Shalom Vemet are. What are they? Remember, remember the passage we said in Zechariah? The, the four fast days? Soma Raviv, Soma Chamishiv, Soma Shviv, Soma Shviv. You libate Yudah, the Sassonu, the Simcha, the Modim Tovim, Vemet Veshalom Ahavu. On what condition will the fast days turn into holidays? If you keep Emet Veshalom. What, what are we turning Purim into? We're turning it into a potential Zechariah feast day. What's Zechariah talking about? If the Jewish people get their behavior together right and recognize what they need to do as a nation, then the fast days can turn into holidays. 
Now, we haven't done that yet in the time of the Megillah. But we're hoping one day we'll get there. And it could be we recognize that maybe that's why we're almost destroyed. So what laws, it's not just about Aliyah. Because not every generation has that opportunity. But I want to make one holiday to remember what the Jewish people need to do, how they have to act to be worthy for the Beit HaMikdash to be rebuilt. And therefore, I'm going to t- turn a sad day into a holiday. And what mitzvot am I going to do on those days? The mitzvot of Sefer Zechariah. And listen how she explains the reason why the Jewish people should keep these laws. Listen what she explains. To keep these laws of Purim. What laws of Purim? Just like Mordechai and Esther kept them. Which means, feasting, standing presence to one another. Not the poor people. Friendship. And, helping the poor. How? Just like the Jewish people took upon themselves and all future... It's not adults and children. It's this generation and all future generations. Al-Nafshan Zaram is something for all generations. What are Dibriyat What do you used to think that was? Those who were paying attention ever to this part of the Megillah. What do most people think that means? No, what, what do most people think Dibriyat Samot are at the end of the Megillah? What's Som? Everyone thinks it's Tanis Esther. It can't be. You know why? It can't be Esther's three-day fast because that was on Pesach. And that was a one-time thing. It was, it was accepted for all generations. It can't be our Tanis Esther. You know why? Because that's only about 800 years old. Not many thousand years old. You know that? Tanis Esther's a new one. It's not in the Gemara or... Not, not, not in Mishnah or Gemara or anything. It's from the time of the Gonim. It's a nice minag we picked up. But it's unheard of when the Megillah was written for sure. There was no... In fact, in Bait Shani was a holiday. What? Why do we fast? It's a beautiful minute. Before we get, once you start getting drunk, you have to... Put, you're about to celebrate someone's death. So, I mean, destruction. You want, to, you want to put yourself worthy of uh, being able to celebrate. Yeah, like before Rosh Chodesh. Yeah, there, there's every, every, each, of the, each, yeah, each of the rabbinic holidays matches the big three holidays. So uh, Purim, Kippurim, and then we have... Uh, there's, there's all, yeah. Where do the customs come from? We'll, we'll get to them in a second. I'm, 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 I'm still at the Bible level. <laughs> now, <laughs> what, what I think Dibriyat Samol Vizakatam is, it's not, it can't be Purim, it's got to be, Dibriyat Samol Vizakatam has to be the four fast days. Now remember, the only, the only non, non, the, the only rabbinic holiday, the only rabbinic law ever instituted up until this time was, was the four fast days. There, there are no new laws, there are no rabbinic laws yet in this time period. Didn't start yet, Ezra didn't come yet. Ezra's coming, maybe this is the beginning of Ezra. But now what are we saying? Just like the Jewish people took upon themselves to fast, the four fast days, to remember Jerusalem. Understand? Why do we institute the four fast days? To remember the destruction. What are the Jewish people doing now? Now we're instituting a feast day. For what reason? Also to remember Jerusalem. It's to remember what we need to do to be worthy of Jerusalem. And hence, Mishloch Monot Ishra'eu Matanot Avionim. Understand? And that could explain why that's going to end of the... And that's what is she right? Divrei Shalom Vemet. Remember that Pasuk in Tzachari again? On what condition? Vemet Veshamahavu. And what did that mean? That was a summary of the whole chapter. Remember? Emet Mishpat Shalom Shifu Vesharechem and take care of the poor and the needy and don't think badly about your neighbors and think positively, all that stuff. That was the theme of the whole. Because there's no point in returning to the land if you're not going to act. Come back to the land and act like they did in Vayat Rishon. Forget it. So we have to be worthy of coming back. 
So not every generation has the opportunity to return, but every generation has the ability to improve its behavior to be worthy of return. And therefore, you can, if that's the background of the Megillah, then it could be one of the reasons. I'm saying it's not the only theme of the Megillah. There's a lot of secondary themes. It could be it's all Purim Torah. But let alone it might be. But there might be something there. There might be, and again, it's not just Zionism. There might be that God gives the Jewish people opportunities. And not only do we have to answer the opportunities, we have to be worthy and ready, we have to be ready for them, but also worthy of them. And, and in Megillah Tester, we're getting to the really core values and core behavior of the Jewish people. Which, and that explains why of all mitzvot, this Mishloch Monot Yisraelim on Purim, how did it become such a main thing? Now, all the other things about getting drunk and masks. Masks, I can begin to understand why, why we dress up. Now, again, that, that's part of the satire, that's part of the hidden message. And why we move all the halachot from Shushan Purim to Yerushalayim and Miyamot Yashua Ben Nun. 